it couldn't be a better preparation for what we're going to look at in the Scriptures this morning. Every one of us seated in here this morning has an opinion on life. I don't simply mean a certain subcategory of life or a certain area of life. I mean life as a whole, the whole thing. All of us have an opinion on life. Now, some of us in here have undoubtedly gone through some really difficult things, some hardships, some trials, some negative experience that have no doubt tainted or clouded or cast kind of an overall picture or color on how you view life. You may be that person who, when someone who kind of views life through rose-colored glasses comes up, you're kind of that person that says, well, let me tell you how life really goes. Or perhaps you're the other end of the spectrum, and you're that person who always sees the glass half full. And you look at life as if it's just an empty canvas and you can't wait to get the paintbrush of life and to chart your course and to make your impact on the world. Wherever you might fall on kind of this spectrum of just life in general, the common denominator is that we all have an opinion, do we not? And as much as we'd want to believe that a biblical worldview informs us, More often than not, our feelings or our experiences tend to color it the most. But just as we have experienced this week with our windshield wipers on our cars, I love the way it clears away the blurriness and gives us a crystal clear picture on what's in front of us. And that is what the Word of God does with any given topic we could bring up this morning. And that's our goal this morning. We want to go large We want to say, what would God have for His people to understand the essence of life to truly be? So would you turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first five verses together. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Before we examine these five verses and understand what God would have for us this morning, would you join me as we just open our hearts before God's Spirit and just welcome Him to do whatever work is necessary to do a realignment on all of us this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord of life, we pray that as we assemble this morning to hear your word, that we would not be the kind of people who draw near and honor you with our lips, but suffer from hearts that are far from you. Lord, would you expose truth to us this morning? May we see your word more clearly, and may we see the true condition of our own hearts more accurately 
And may we most of all behold the stunning beauty of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May every one of us here this morning leave with a greater grasp of our union with Christ and a deeper thankfulness for all it entails. Father, how privileged we are to gather like we we are doing right now. And I pray we wouldn't squander this valuable time. Give us insight that we do not have in and of ourselves. And we don't say this flippantly, but we want to do all things for your honor and glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some years ago, I had the opportunity to visit the nation of Cambodia. And while I was there, I was able to travel to see one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the ancient Angkor Wat temples in the region of Siem Reap, Cambodia. What you're looking at is the most well-known of the 100-plus temples that are just scattered all throughout these jungles, largely unknown for large portions of history, but, but well-received as being well over 1,000 years old or so. And the question that I had as I walked through these temples, and one of the great things about it is there's no yellow tape telling you you really can't go anywhere. So it's just an open exploration for wherever you'd like to go. And the question I had as I walked through these temples was a question that really everybody has when they go through them. Whether you're a local tour guide or a historian of Cambodian history, the reality is no one really knows how these temples were made. In fact, the the closest rock quarry where they would have found uh, at least some rock needed to amass these incredible formations was over 100 miles away. And even that local quarry was so small, there's no way it could have amounted to the stone needed to build these temples. So the question I had, that everyone really had, who walks through these temples, is a question of origin. How in the world did these people build these things? Truly is unbelievable. After all, John begins with a statement of origin in John chapter 1. And the origin of something is important to know because it tells us something about that thing's purpose, does it not? John begins by telling us that the origin of everything is accounted for in God's Son, Jesus Christ. John begins in this manner so we might understand life's purpose. And if we would know the true meaning of life this morning, if we would comprehend John's message to us, we must understand that our only hope for life is to source our lives, to anchor our lives exclusively in Jesus. So with this as our goal this morning, I would like us to see the following three things. Because Jesus is eternal, because Jesus is creator, And ultimately, because Jesus is our Redeemer, we must seek life in Him. Because Jesus is eternal, because Jesus is Creator, and because Jesus is ultimately our Redeemer, we must seek life in Him. In verses 1 and 2, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God 
and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now at the time John wrote his gospel, there was already a myriad of false ideas circulating about the nature of Jesus, as you can imagine. And part of John's purpose in writing this gospel is to definitively clarify who Jesus truly was. And as you may have already noticed, John chapter 1, verse 1, begins with the same three words as another book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And make no mistake, this is no accident on John's part. It's not as if after the fact he looked and said, oh, what do you know? Huh. John is communicating something that would have arrested the attention of every monotheistic Jew who heard these words. Because at the very dawn of biblical history, Moses begins to write the book of Genesis by revealing God. In the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is presented as the majestic, all-powerful sovereign of the universe. And here, John opens in the same way with the opening phrase of the Torah. But he doesn't go the direction that they would have gone for centuries. He says, in the beginning, Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Make no mistake what John is doing. He's confirming Jesus' own words, I and my Father are one. Allow me to illustrate it this way, of how it would have fallen on, on Jewish ears. Now, how many of you enjoy, you, you thoroughly enjoy hearing someone just boast incessantly about their own accomplishments? Do you enjoy that? Is that something you look forward to in the morning? Oh, I hope someone just, just blabbers on all day about how great they are. Generally, we don't enjoy that. But imagine for a moment the laughable nature of if a, a, a 75-year-old gentleman was, was in your presence and he began to tell you how he truly believed, he wasn't joking, he truly believed himself to be equal in every category of basketball skill as the 2014 most valuable player of the National Basketball Association, Kevin Durant of the Oklahoma City Thunder. Now imagine, he's, he's not just joking around with the grandkids. He truly believes here and now, not like reliving the glory days, right now, he is equal. It's kind of like, well, maybe he'd beat me one game, but I'd always beat him the next. And I mean, we are on the same level. It's just crazy, right? You'd say, the, the poor man. <laughs> and two things are happening in this conversation. First of all, the poor gentleman is just humiliating himself, is he not? Because he's so clearly outranked in that given category. But what's he also doing? He's mocking the greatness of this premier athlete at the very same time, is he not? Well, the same thing would have been happening to every monotheistic Jew who, who would have been hearing this. They would have said, oh, come now, we've been hearing about Jesus for long enough. Just stop the, the patronize, stop talking about him this way. And, and actually, you've gone way too far this time. You're quoting our own sacred scriptures, and then you're applying it not to Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're applying it to this man, Jesus? Oh, You've gone way too far. You kind of sense the, 
the weightiness of what John's doing. He's, he knows what he's doing. He's lighting a fire. But it's that very fire that couldn't be more accurate. However, in this case, John could not be more on target because Jesus Christ is our eternal God. He has no beginning. He will have no end. He is the eternal, pre-existent Son of God. Furthermore, John states that Jesus was not only with God, but that Jesus was God. There's hardly a, a passage in all the Scriptures more critical to the Christian understanding of the Trinity than John chapter 1. In fact, there's, because this is such a crucial passage, we should not be surprised that this passage has been at the center of many a debate throughout the ages. You might look back as far back as the 4th century, soon following Constantine's legalization and really outright popularization of Christianity within the Roman Empire, a very winsome and articulate presbyter of the church by the name of Arius appeared on the scene with quite a following. Arius began to question the deity of Christ and the triunity of God. He began to teach that Jesus, as the second member of the Trinity, was no more than just a created being, though he was admittedly the greatest of God's creatures as an archangel. Thankfully, a council of 318 bishops convened at what has become known as the Council of Nicaea, and all but two of them voted to condemn Arius as a heretic. If you know anything about what that meant in those days, it wasn't pretty. More recently, we might think of those who identify themselves with Jehovah's Witness. Surely you've interacted from time to time with some of them on your doorsteps or out in public. But adherents of this belief system intentionally changed the wording of John chapter 1 in their New World Translation to read that the word was simply a God, not that the word was God. This is in direct violation of well-established, well-received rules of Greek grammar. But they seek to demote Jesus to something far beneath that of equality with the Father. But we can be sure that John, by guidance of the Spirit of God, has carefully selected his grammar to demonstrate Jesus' eternal pre-existence with God. Later in his Gospel, before an angry Jewish crowd Jesus boldly declares, before Abraham was, I am. Or literally, we could read, before Abraham came into being, I always existed. Three times in verse 1, John uses the same verb, making it abundantly clear that Jesus is indeed eternal. Now, it's, it is in John's unique and, and powerful depiction of Jesus as this pre-existent, co-equal with the Father, that really the splendor of the gospel begins to unfold before us. If Jesus is the very source of life, if Jesus is the very source of all life, it makes sense, it follows, that there can be no life apart from Him. If Jesus is the source of all life, it only makes sense that there can be no life apart from Him. Think of our lives for a moment. Think how foolish we go on trying to find life, trying to find life's meaning, trying to give ourselves purpose for a day, 
and not anchoring ourselves exclusively in the source of all life, Jesus himself. In our day and age, it seems that individualism is just the air we breathe in our Western culture, is it not? That desire to, to be our own person, to, to put our stamp on the world, to do something great for our own honor and glory. Since this is the case, we have to admit that on those times that we come head-to-head with our own limitations, we can find it kind of disturbing. And our lives can quickly become consumed with our own abilities, our own sufficiency, and our own greatness. Or at least we believe our own lies, and so we think. But by highlighting the unmatched eternality of Jesus, John would have us see the futility of this kind of thinking. God's eternal Son is our only hope for this life and the next. And make no mistake, when John speaks repeatedly about life in Christ, he's not only speaking about fire insurance or being saved for eternity. He has that in mind, but the benefits of that cannot help but break into the here and now because Jesus has triumphantly come and because of who He is. So we've seen that because Jesus is eternal, we must seek life in Him. But Jesus isn't only eternal. For the text goes on and it shows us that Jesus is also our eternal Creator. Because Jesus is Creator, we must seek life in Him. So verse 3 reads, All things were made through Him, and without Him, was not anything made that was made. Just as the book of Genesis opens with God creating everything through the power of His spoken Word, now the Word become flesh, as John will refer to Jesus in verse 14, just a few verses later. The Word become flesh is honored for the very same creative activity. Praise and honor is given to the Son of God for His glorious work in creation throughout the New Testament. The passages we just read together this morning, Colossians 1, 16-17, For by Him, Christ, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus is not only the creator of all things, but it is in Him that everything remains intact. The writer of Hebrews echoes Paul's words when he writes in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, a passage we also read. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe. Just some parts of our world? No. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. I heard someone refer to that, His proverbial pinky finger. He upholds the universe with the word of His power. 
Truly all things were made by Jesus. And there exists nothing in all the universe that does not bear His creative mark. Because His creative mark is on everything, He rules with complete authority. Complete authority. Now imagine for a moment that you're, you're an artist. And maybe you earn your living doing something else, but your way of kind of relaxing after a, a long week is to, to draw or paint or sculpt something, and, and you just love it. And you're not under contract by someone telling you what to do and how to do it. It's just for your own enjoyment. Now, because you're the originator of whatever you're going to draw or sculpt or paint, you have total authority over its outcome. You have total authority if you want to give it away, you want to put it up on your wall, you want to throw it away. It, because you're the originator, you have complete authority. Do you see the parallel to Christ? Because He's the originator, because He's eternal, because He's the pre-existent, co-equal with the Father, He's the originator of all things, and He bears complete, sovereign control and authority over everything. Is that not the battle of life to believe that's the truth? And when life doesn't go our way, we doubt that. But it is true. It is true. What an amazing reality. When we move, though, from this abstract idea down into our personal lives, we must remember that there's not one corner of our lives that we get to keep to ourselves. There's not small little drawers or compartments that remain ours. No, Jesus knows them all, and He is over them all. He gave us life. He sustains our breath. How foolish it is to attempt to find life apart from Him. Since we were created for His honor and glory, we malfunction. We just mess up when we don't live for His honor and glory, our created purpose. So not only is Jesus eternally co-equal with the Father, and not only does He hold complete authority by virtue of His work as Creator, but lastly, we see that we must seek life in Him because He's our Redeemer and He's our Savior. Verses 4 and 5 read, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, John inextricably links the divine life that is in Christ with the light of all men. Light and life must not be separated here. You might recall God's conquering of the darkness by means of the light in Genesis chapter 1. Or God's shepherding of Israel through the darkness of the wilderness by means of the pillar of fire. Or God's call upon Israel in Isaiah 40 through 55 to be a light to the nations. Truly, the light has come. The light of men. The light of God has come in Christ, and He is the light of men. Throughout the book, John repeatedly alludes to both of these themes of light and life. Just listen as I briefly survey a, a, a few texts here. John, read, John writes in, in uh, Chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, 10 reads, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In John 5.26, Jesus speaks to a skeptical Jewish crowd. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Jesus continues a few verses later. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about Me. And yet you refuse to come to Me that you might have life. And finally, John reveals the purpose of why he wrote this entire gospel of John. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Even in John's other letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, it's almost as if he cannot escape from this theme. He says in 1st John 5, 12-13, Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you that you who believe in the name of the Son of God and that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, death and darkness cannot stand against the conquest of the light. Christ Jesus is the eternal creator and savior of the world. This is the great hope of the gospel. Namely, that the darkened, sinful hearts of men will not be left hopelessly without light. And in His infinite kindness, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. One of my favorite verses, unfortunately we don't have time to look down to it, but in verse 14 of chapter 1, He dwelt among us. Literally, God set up His tent among men so that He might dwell with them eternally so that he might seek and save the lost. Later on in, in John chapter 12, with more of a, bringing more of a sober light to this very same theme, while speaking to a mixed audience of both Jews and Greek God-fearers, Jesus speaks these sober words. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Immediately after Jesus says these words, God the Father thunders an audible promise that he will glorify his Son from heaven. Yet still, some Jews continue to question Jesus on what it means that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And listen how he carefully responds. In verses 35 and 36, Jesus says this, The light, speaking of Himself, is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. Now what's He saying there? Life is no neutral playground. It's not. In fact, darkness is as real in this world as you are right now. And the darkness would love nothing more than destroy every one of us. But if we would loosen our grip 
on living our self-consumed, self-obsessed lives, we would understand first the call to be sons and daughters of the light, and then the joyful obedience of what it means to walk in the light. I hope we feel the intensely practical nature of Jesus' words. Let me ask you this morning, will you abandon these desires that we all have to anchor and fix our lives, to build our lives in all the wrong places? Will you abandon your desire to find life apart from Jesus? Where do you fall this morning? Perhaps doing a brief inventory on your heart would be helpful. Is it your career? Those of you who are well-established in what you feel like God has called you to do in life, but perhaps you've long left behind that, that godly desire to simply provide for yourself and your family, and, and the corporate ladder has just enamored you. And maybe that, that, that get on the boat with everyone else who tramples on everyone else and says whatever they need to to get where they want to go has just started to become part of you. Has life become all about career? Perhaps the, the dollar has consumed, that bank account that's never quite high enough. And that's not just for those who've been blessed with a lot. It's for those who might have very little. But that desire to, to have more, all that money can bring, has that started to define and present life as more attractive than simply life lived in obedience and faithfulness to Jesus? What about education? Maybe those who are in college or even high school has, has even getting a certain GPA or, or the thoughts of what you're going to do in the future, is that all that consumes so that you just have breakdowns every time you get a B or something? Perhaps that's controlling in a way that's far too much. Perhaps it's that social circle of friends, that insatiable desire, regardless of age, regardless of age, that insatiable desire and thirst for approval, for being accepted. And life just orbits around who you talk to, who said what about you, and how you kind of position yourself in, in a certain group of people. We want to think we're more spiritual, these, these things, but is this not where we live? Life can so easily veer away from Jesus. Perhaps it's that ability to be the perfect parent or present to the world the all-American family. And there's great, great, great disappointment when our children stop living out our dreams. Perhaps it's appearance, accomplishments, whatever it might be. There are a million different combinations and ways in which we can, we can so quickly turn life to being anchored in anything but Jesus. John would have all of us this morning undergo a realignment of our hearts. That we would see painfully sometimes who we really are, what we really want, and we would allow life to be defined by Jesus. One of the joys about being new to a church like Rachel and I are is that we get in a high, high dosage of a lot of the stories of God's grace 
how he's worked, what he's currently doing, and how he's, he's at work in so many of your lives. I was just with someone yesterday from this assembly, and they were recounting to me the story of how the light was shining into the darkness, and how over the course of months, years, the darkness could not overcome it. And I was almost to the point of tears just listening to this story. And I wanted to say, is that not the power of the gospel being lived out? Life in Christ cannot, cannot be any fuller. We were made for Christ. We were made to find life in Him. We've observed that because Jesus is our eternal Creator and our Redeemer, we must seek life in Him alone. There was a man who lived many years ago who made it his aim to find the good life. In fact, he spared no expense in this pursuit, and as king over an entire nation, he had infinite resources at his disposal. He sought the good life through pleasure, through possession, through intellectual pursuits, through women, through parties, and all that money could buy. And in his own words, he said this, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. What does that mean? Anything I wanted, I got. However, his entire experiment led him to this singular conclusion, and that's this. Life without God is utterly hopeless. Life without God is utterly hopeless. This man's name, of course, was King Solomon. He recorded the findings of his investigation in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the final report was this. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of all mankind. In short, the God-centered life is the only life worth living. We need John's message this morning. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in His name. Because Jesus is our eternal Creator, He owns every one of us. He has complete control over every corner of our lives. And because Jesus is our eternal Redeemer and Savior, He has led us out of darkness and into His glorious light. In every corner of our lives, this week, would we bow the knee to who Jesus is and let Him define the essence of life? Let's pray together. Lord, we suffer from spiritual amnesia all the time. We forget the riches that we possess in Jesus Christ. Father, as we stare into the mystery of the gospel and we see all that Jesus went through to die in our place, to transfer His righteous credentials to us and to receive in Himself the penalty for our sins, how foolish if we neglect so great a salvation. But Lord, that's, 
That's the quandary we're all in this morning. We tend to forget. And so, Lord, I pray for humility among all of us this morning, among myself and for all my brothers and sisters, that we would recognize our tendency on a daily basis to run away from what we know to be true, to run away from life in Christ. Lord, one of the best ways even in which we can find out what truly and genuinely is at the center of our lives is to ask those around us. I even pray this week that some of us would seek out those trusted friendships or relationships, those kinds of people who would, who would be able to honestly answer the question, what's at the center of my life? What do I give my time, effort, resources, and joy and passion to? God, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend. But I pray that we wouldn't let these words fall on deaf ears, but that we would be doers of the word and, and do something with them. Oh Lord, I pray that Jesus Christ would become so infinitely valuable before our eyes that the things of earth would grow strangely dim compared to who he is. We love you and we ask for grace to live these things out. It's for your honor we pray this. Amen. Please stand with me and in silence for a few moments, examine your own heart. Is Christ your life? What does that look like? What perhaps should it look like? Let's meditate together in silence.